uh, after the Berwick Avenue debacle, I ended up um, moving to Badger Farm. Of course. Weren't you one of the first people in there or something? Uh, I think we were probably about the third or fourth people to move into the... It was the first row of houses that they built there. It's now an enormous housing estate with a, with a huge, great superstore. But mm. uh, what happened was that the people who owned the, the house share from hell lived abroad and they were coming back. And so we, we all had to leave. And there was a guy there staying uh, as a lodger like me called Bill. And he said, I've heard they're building this new estate uh, just outside Winchester. Uh, shall we go and have a look and see if there's any opportunities there? So... As you know, in Germany, people don't tend to own their houses. They tend to rent them. And so the, the concept of buying a house had never entered my head. But anyway, I went along with it. And there was this kind of like a field with, with um, a few sort of concrete foundations for just one little street in the process of being built. And there was a lady in a porter cabin. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and she said, literally, she said to me, well, if you give me 100 quid now cash, uh, that will be a deposit. And uh, that will secure you this uh, rather bijou three-bedroom property. And so I did. In those days, they didn't have cash machines. I, I went up to Oliver's Battery to the bank, got 100 quid out and gave it to her. And then I went home and I had a, a, a rather tense conversation with my father at the end of which he agreed to lend me £1,000 for the deposit. Cool. And uh, we ended up with a with, with actually a really quite nice little three bedroom house for thirteen thousand. This is what it cost. <laughs> and so we were one of the very first families in there, and uh, it was a quite an interesting little collection of of people there because on one side of us uh, were, were the following people in a row. There was uh, there was uh, four nurses who lived in one house, which had been bought by someone who was in the army and bought it as an investment. Next door to him was. Uh, Tony Hill, the uh, the famous, well, actually, it was Tony Hill's wife, Jenny, the, the Tony Hill, the printer from Winchester, and she was with her then husband. Yeah, and uh, they had several large, extremely large, long-eared rabbits in the garden, which lolloped around all day. And then next to them was this extraordinary menage, which consisted of a, a lady who I think must have been the grandmother, because she was very old, of this guy called Johnny Cockshut, who we called Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> well it's better than cock open johnny cockshut who was a we called him johnny the punk and he had a band that actually got signed called anabas i was reading an article i wrote about them was that, <laughs> just was, the that other sorry, day. was that his real name yeah johnny cockshut I, I looked him up on facebook just just last week and he's something incredibly respectable in finance and lives in I don't know, Derbyshire or somewhere. You see, I, time, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be using that as a search term on Facebook or anywhere else for that matter. Oh, my God. Yes, yes you're quite right. You well, luckily, check the just... adverts you're going to get next. <laughs> he lived opposite where they built a little block of garages. So for this small amount of money we paid, we also got a garage. And is this lady, who I assume was his grandmother, uh, turfed him out. Um, and he went and lived, actually lived for about a year in the garage. And it was like one of those up and over, up and over doors. So I would occasionally go out there with, you know, can of beans or something, knock on the door and push the can of beans under. Um, but he was quite, he was really super cool character. He wore, he wore bondage trousers um, and uh, he found it quite hard to walk with them, you know, because they were all like clipped, clipped together. And he had this shock of uh, bright peroxide hair. 
Well, at least he didn't have to think up a punk name either, did he? Uh, no, because he 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 was born to be a punk, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Johnny Cockshot. I mean, it's quite good, isn't it? It's, 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 it's got a double T on the end, so Cockshot. <laughs> on the other side, and this is the more controversial thing, as it turned out, but we had no knowledge of it at the time. Uh, I was rather starstruck to find that our neighbour to the right uh, was uh, a man called Chris Denning, oh. who I knew at the time. Hindsight is a great thing, but at the time, all I knew of him was that he was one of the original Radio 1 DJs. And you know that photo that you see, the black and white photo of Tony Blackburn and John Peel and all that lot gathered outside Broadcasting House? He's on that photo. He was doing the four till six drive time slot. Right. And uh, he then, uh, he, he famously got fired from the BBC because he, he came on air and he said, uh, I woke up this morning feeling like a 12-year-old boy. But unfortunately, I couldn't find one. Oh, my God. Yes. Uh, which was not uh, something that went down very well uh, in the upper echelons of the BBC. Uh, and he was more or less fired overnight. But I think they obviously knew that bad stuff was going on. But as far as I'm aware, there was this man next door. He was very friendly. He had a, a beautiful cat that mated with our cat. And, you know, we used to go around to his house because huge dollop of kittens was born hmm. and um he would impress me lord help my soul because i didn't know at the time he had been working for a, a record company called bell records and bell records was famous for worldwide hits by just get these names that are coming up now jonathan king <gasps> and gary glitter all gary glitter's hits were on the bell label you should have, and, should have called uh, the record label nonce records yeah. <laughs> yes, I think that and worse, to be honest with you, Richard, uh, we now know because uh, if you ever Google Chris Denning, mm. uh, he died about three years ago, but he spent, uh, I think, oh, well over 10 years in, in prison in the Czech Republic uh, because eventually he at the time he was in Winchester because he'd set himself up as a franchisee of um, a printing company called Colquick. And he had a little shop next to Whitwam's in the high street. And then he was doing in the evening, he was doing um, live DJ sessions, mainly on army camps. And it was only it wasn't till years, many, many years later, only a few years ago, I, I got a call from Operation U-Tree mm -hmm. and uh, two policemen came and visited me. And of course, uh, they said, did you ever see anything suspicious? Because we... We've we've worked out that you you lived in the same street as him, and of course I now realise I did see something suspicious without realising because he uh, had like a little um, trailer attached to his car which was full of all his DJ equipment, and on a Friday and Saturday I would see various teenage boys would come up and help him load his gear into that trailer, oh dear, and off they would go. And uh, they showed me some photographs, and I, I even recognised a couple of the, these lads. But uh, I wouldn't recommend you go in there because it's uh, it's deeply unpleasant. But uh, if you ever look into the kind of stuff that Jonathan King and he uh, and Gary Glitter got up to, it was just unspeakable. So it had to be said that Maytree Close, Badger Farm, uh, which is now the heart of sort of very dull suburbia, uh, was quite a hotbed for uh, extraordinary goings-on when we unwittingly moved there. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hello and welcome to the intermission. It's Rich here. This is just a quick note to say that at this point in the recording onwards, my side of the recording doesn't sound quite as good as it probably should be. I don't quite know why. Probably some schoolboy error compounded by the fact that I was drinking cheap co-op lager at the time of recording. Hopefully it won't ruin your enjoyment too much. So anyway, on we go. Thanks. So when you moved to Badger Farm, Sainsbury's, Sainsbury's wasn't there? Indeed, it wasn't. Uh, uh, Badger Farm uh, was as bucolic as, as it sounds. Uh, I don't think there were actually any badgers sort of um, trolling around the uh, meadows, but we were called uh, Maytree Close. I don't think there were any Maytrees there. Uh, and the road that led into it was uh, called Meadow Way, which was very appropriate because there was this beautiful huge meadow with um wildflowers and, and it was an ideal place for for our uh, little cat who was called harry the one that was impregnated by chris denning's cat uh she used to go there catching mice and things uh, no sign of any badgers as such um and then after we'd been there for a few years uh suddenly there was this threat that they were going to build a, a superstore and just destroy this meadow mm. well in something that then was uh, regarded as nimbyism, which actually it was because we didn't want a fucking great supermarket outside our window. Nowadays, probably would be reviewed as a, a very good ecological thing to do. We said, no, no, this is not right. We don't want this thing there. And I, <laughs> I, I then sort of got myself into uh, one of those situations where I ended up as the kind of community leader, chief agitator. I think I mentioned to you uh, a while ago, it's happened twice that I've been on the front page of uh, the Winchester Gazette Extra uh, as a teacher in, first of all, it was a teacher in rat rum fury. And this was teacher in superstore rage. You're like concerned of Badger Farm or concerned of Winchester as a whole. Yeah, well, no, I was thinking I was more an anarchist. Rich, so you were, you, know, it's a right? you were by the, you were by the Meinhof. <laughs> this is what this underlying thing is going to be all about, isn't it? At the end of at the end of ev- exactly it. at the end of episode eight hundred and thirty-seven, <laughs> it's going to be revealed. <laughs> the, yeah, the, I have to say, Ulrika uh, Meinhof's secret lover all along, and still know where well, the bodies are buried. Wouldn't mind that actually. She's quite hot. Uh, I was thinking more Badger Meinhof. Uh, oh, which... see what you did there. See what you did there. Boom! boom. That's a t-shirt. Talking make, of... isn't it? I think I'll go and go and have one made. Now you can get them done online, can't you? Yeah. It reminded me of that uh, guy um, Dingo, who was uh, he used to be in the Fall. He was about seven foot tall, and he was PJ Harvey's bassist at one stage in one of her many bands. And uh, my wife and I went off to Rome to see them. And uh, do you remember that um, if you if they ever played in Bridport, there was this guy who'd always stand in the audience and shout out Badger in the middle of the songs. See? That was his name, I yeah, think. Yeah. yeah. And um, so on this occasion, Birgit got drunk on champagne. To be fair, no, not champagne. What's the what's the um, Italian stuff? Carver. No, that's Spanish. is this. Is this the, sorry? Prosecco. Is this the same concert that she's bumming cigarettes off of people. That is right. Mainly extremely yeah. handsome Italians that made me feel extremely jealous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so P- P- PJ Harvey's in the middle of one of her probably most sort of poignant atmospheric songs, and she starts yelling out, 
badger at the top of her voice, which, of course, works well in Dorset because people understand the joke. It didn't go down so well in, in Rome. But never mind. Uh, it, it was the thought of badgers that made me think of dingoes, so that, that explains that particular um, bit of thought processing. I did not kill we, uh, my baby. <laughs> <laughs> we better not go down that way. We'll be on for the next 20 minutes on that one. So we had this little row of houses, which I previously described. Uh, so you, you've got a picture, the row of houses, and then the meadow on the other side. Mm. And the road, that's still the road that goes down into Badger Farm, uh, was at kind of eye level from our upper windows. And my uh, plot was to get people to do large day glow posters, each of which had one letter on it. And then eventually it went from the top of the road to the bottom of the road. And as you drove past, it spelt out no Sainsbury's here. Oh, did some did some houses have to be the breaks between words or did you just run it all together? It, 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 no, no, we had a, a not a whole house, but a window would be a break. And did you handwrite this or did you use some early version oh, of Comic we, Sans we, or? <laughs> You're kidding. That didn't exist. We had uh, we had large pieces of um, day glow paper that actually left over from Lib Dam posters that Sarsen Press had made. You know, can I just say that kind of <laughs> protest for that kind of protest, you definitely would have used papyrus as your as your font <laughs> of choice, because that is the comic sans of the chattering classes. So that I can I can see that stretching down May tree clothes perfectly. <laughs> well, um, to, talking about papyrus, it might well have come from Parchment Street, might it not? What, the font? No, the parchment and the papyrus. Oh, well, pap I'm trying to be a, to make a paper joke here. Oh, yeah, well, papyrus, the name of the font, papyrus, obviously comes from, yeah, papyrus, from the Latin word papyrus. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be a masculine word because they end in US. Did, Did uh, they really? I didn't know that. Yes. Oh. Do you remember there was a, a little tiny nightclub in uh, Parchment Street at one stage, uh, where the pie shop is now? Um, what was it called? What, and uh, they blue. used to have sort of live music and things there. Blue something. I thought it was red something. Anyways, a, a colour of some variety. Moon something. Mm, nah, I'll look it up and get back to you. But there was, uh, it was, it like a sort of tried to be like a mini art centre. It was mm. really quite good. And uh, other stuff in that street includes um, the Oxfam Bookshop, of course, which is uh, yeah indispensable. It's where I find used copies of my books that people <laughs> people have uh, not reviewed and then uh, given to the Oxfam Bookshop. I did going back to that venue, even though we can't remember what it's called. I I went there once and there was a blues band playing, and their name was the Average Blues Band. <laughs> Yes, and I, I just remember them. And have all the names. You're, you're going to give yourself. I mean, it's, it's, call yourself it's like really the, the all right folk band, the not bad jazz band. <laughs> just terrible, terrible name. I know. It, it's an awful name. Although there was the average white band, and they weren't average at all. They were they're very good, weren't they? They probably had some like average height people with the surname White in the band. They were Scottish, weren't they? Ah. Yes, of course, that would explain that one. That would be my guess. I don't know that for sure. So uh, now we're back on the subject of central Winchester. We can we can sort of return to where we and where we and how we first met. Which, considering that we've been such pals for, I worked it out last night, forty-one years. Oh, God. Um, yeah. So in nineteen seventy-nine, uh, I had already been 
teaching Henry Beaufort for three years. Mm. And uh, suddenly uh, you popped into my life in the form of being, as I remember, a very small person, very unobtrusive, not naughty. Um, you had a, a, some similarly small friends and you all sat in a little bunch in the front row. And that was uh, John McIntosh and um, Simon Woodington. Alistair Clarkson, yeah, uh, who I think are lifelong friends of yours, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still, uh, yeah, it's still kind of, um, well, yeah, John for sure, definitely. And Simon Waddington's lived in the States for years and years. And the last time I was out there, and this is years ago as well, 2002, went to see him, him and his, uh, oh. him and his partner live in Oakland. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's still, well, we're, we're, you know, we're friends on you know, all the obvious social media channels. And I've got a great Simon Waddington story to tell at some point, which was... Oh, well, do you want to tell it now or is it not appropriate? Uh, I'll tell it when, when if we ever get around to talking about learning French, I'll tell it. Oh, I'm sure we're going to get yeah. around to talk about learning French quite sure soon. So anyway, so there you all were. And uh, one thing that um, pupils never realise, but teachers always do, is that if you want to be not noticed in class now i think of, of you guys and i think maybe particularly of you that you would not you wouldn't wonder what you wouldn't have wanted to be naughty uh boy but you probably wouldn't have wanted to sort of be in the spotlight and and, and be picked on to to answer questions and things and so no you did something i don't know if you realized at the time how incredibly wise it was because if you're a teacher standing at the front of a class your field of vision is like a kind of v-shape and the people you can see best and keep the very closest eye on are the people who are sitting in the back row because they're all within your line of vision. Yeah. That's invariably where the naughty ones go and sit in the back row thinking they can be naughty there because they're far away from the teacher. Whereas if you want to be unobtrusive and not spotted and generally sort of just drift along, that's where you were sitting, which was extreme front right, where without turning my head, I can't really see you. So were you aware of that? Was it was it actual policy or was it just chance? No, that's interesting you say that because my take on that would be the reason why uh, the noisy, boisterous, get-in-trouble crew are at the back and the reason the quiet ones are at the front of the class is because in the queue outside, the boisterous, noisy ones have pushed all the quiet ones to the back of the queue and then the doors open up and that lot fill up from the back. And so you're left with whatever you're given. Gosh, that's good. And then uh, that's a yeah, really again, good school, which I school hadn't realised. School is not a democracy when you're a child. And that would have been the first lesson. And then what I would have done, definitely remember this at every class, I'd have gone round immediately and given you all a piece of paper for you to write your name on. And mm. you would have all stayed in the same seats for the entire year. Yeah. So that I, I would I would also be at the front, I would have a piece of paper and I would draw a map of who's sitting where. And that's what every teacher needs to do because within the first maybe less than a week you've learnt all the names. Yeah. And you know who who's where. Yeah, that makes sense. Totally. So as my memory, you, you, you were saying you found uh, Westman Road uh, so uh, small. Is my memory that you guys were very small? Is that right? Well, I'm small for your age. I, I was pretty chubby, but... Um, I don't know. I, it's weird with me thinking about Henry Beaufort because I don't honestly, I don't honestly remember that much about it. I have a few real crystal clear memories of specific things happening, but on the whole, it's not something. It's not something that I enjoyed. 
would ever want to wish on anybody, to be honest. Um, okay. Okay. So this is quite interesting. So you're saying you really didn't enjoy your school days? No, not at all. Can you go into a bit more detail? I'm intrigued. Well, oh, sort of you're very cheerful, happy little guy. Yeah, well, that's a way to survive, isn't it? And being, being <laughs> funny is a way to survive as well. Uh, it was just, I could never, um, I never quite got the point. And I know that sounds ridiculous because the point is to be, is to learn things and be educated in the wonderful things of the world. But at the same time, that's not the point. The point is you spend five years at a place and the point is you pass your exams at the end of those five years and that allows you to go on and do more. And that, you know, I totally get that, but there, there was just, there were subjects that I really liked and the teachers that I liked, such as you, I, I liked you, therefore I liked the subject German and I liked Nolthorpe Tracy and I like the subjects English and drama, which I have with him. Although I didn't actually, I didn't actually start English with Mr. Thorpe Tracy. I was in the low, I was put in the lower group, which was a group which was taught by a sports teacher who was a sports teacher mainly, but he taught English in his part time. And we had our lessons in the library. And one of the things that we did back then was there was this little book club and you could uh, pay your 50p a week or something. And once a month, you would get a little bag, literally a bag and had these three books in it. And you had no idea what those books could be. They could be anything. And uh, so I used to subscribe to this and I'd get these books and some were interesting and some weren't. And then one time uh, this, this English teacher, sports English teacher said, okay, I want you all to, for your homework over the weekend, write a book review, write a review of a book that you've recently read, can be anything you want, and then hand it in and I'll go away and mark them and I'll come back and we'll talk about it. Sort of standard English practice, I guess. And anyway, one of the books I'd got in the most recent bag was Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka, which, oh, I, I mean, I, uh, exactly, I knew nothing about, but... Um, but when you're, I don't know how old I would have been, 12, 13, you, know, you don't, you didn't need to know the history of the book or the importance of that book. To me, it was a book about a guy who woke up in the morning and had turned into a giant insect, which was in, incredibly exciting, and incredibly good fun. So I well, that's what, that's what it is. Exactly. Yeah. And I wrote my book on, I wrote my book review on Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka and I handed it in and the teacher went away and read everybody's book reviews and the next lesson he praised a few people in class and then had a go at another few people in class saying you know that that bit of writing wasn't that great etc etc and then he called me to the front and I thought oh god I might, I'm gonna get like some sort of like special treatment here gold star exactly and he, he stood there and he said, I can't believe you're wasting my time like this. How dare you hand in a book review of a book that is obviously so stupid, it doesn't exist. Christ. How can you have made up a book and written a fake book review? You know, who do you think you are, etc., etc., etc. And Cruel in the extreme. Yeah, and also, and also really stupid. And I went back to my desk thinking well I, you know, I, I have a physical copy of this book I know this book exists 
So two things ended up coming out, coming, coming from that is that I went home and told my folks and my folks, they didn't know anything about Kafka anyway, but they saw that there was this physical thing, an actual copy of this book and this book existed. So they complained to the school and pretty soon after that, probably in a fit of embarrassment from the school, I was moved from this teacher's class into the top class with Mr. Thorpe Tracy. And I mean, what, one of the things that came out of that experience about metamorphosis was, as I said before, you, you're in this place for five years and you're there to learn from these people and they're meant to know better than, better than you about a subject. And that was one of those points I really remember where I was standing there thinking, I know more about this than you. You don't understand this. And then it's... that, and then, and then the, the polar opposite of that was going into Mr. Thorpe Tracy's class because obviously Mr. Thorpe Tracy hadn't read every book in the world. But if you spoke to him about a book, he would say, no, tell me about it. I don't know that. What, you know, and you could have a conversation with him and he never dismissed anything in the same way that you would never dismiss anything about language. And you certainly never dismissed anything about music. Mr. Thorpe Tracy never dismissed anything about anything that was our interest in English or drama. And so it was a completely different environment. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking that uh, it's significant that you can remember word for word what that teacher said to you because something like that, which is such a, a completely unnecessary and cruel put down, and and by the way, illustrates the ignorance of the of, of the pedagogue rather than you because you were the one that had picked up on this cool piece of classic literature that you obviously yeah. never heard of. And even though it, it was just by chance, but yeah, exactly. And that's what I mean. I have a few real crystal clear memories that's one of them and then actually oddly enough the Noel Thorpe Tracy one wasn't in class it was I'm sure you had to do this you had to um look after kids who were on the break you know we, we used to you know mill around yeah, like yeah. The, the the top tennis courts and there would always be a teacher wandering around yeah I mainly and, forgot um, and went and had a cup of tea instead and got bollocked and had, had to go well. running up five minutes before the end of break but <laughs> pretend yeah. you've been there all along <laughs> yes. well I remember I was milling around the playground one break and Noel thought Tracy it was his his turn to do the the break duty and so I went up to him and said oh Mr Thorpe Tracy have you ever read the book Papillon you know about Henri Charrier's escape from Devil's Island and, and stuff and he went no I, I haven't what's it about I said, oh, it's about this guy that gets sent to jail. And he just cut in. He said, no, what's it about? And I said, it's about a guy who gets sent to jail. And what he does, and thought Mr. Thorpe went, no, what's it about? And this went on and on and on. And so in the end, I think he said to me, just go away and think, what's it about? And I went away and thought about it. And obviously I can put it into words so much better now than I could then. But it was... It was subtext and it was the first time that I'd realised that, you know, I mean, that book's actually about, it's about redemption and the hidden evils of civilised society and stuff. But it was the first time I realised that, you know, the events that occur in any given story are not what that story is necessarily about. Mm. And that was an absolute, that was an absolute revelation. And so, just, yeah. you know, it was just, just incredible. Just those two instances of like two very, very different teachers. I mean, if my parents hadn't complained and I hadn't got moved, that would have just been another O-level that I failed. 
<laughs> if I'd stayed in that class, there would be there would have been no English lit or no English language for me. So, so in fact, uh, uh, something good came out of something bad. There, um, I, I had two instances of that when I was a school pupil myself, many years before you were. Um, mm. And one of them was quite a similar one, actually. I was always quite good at writing, and I used to get sort of good marks at essays and things. But uh, the, the, there were a couple of teachers at my awful school that I went to who couldn't control their anger quite often, and if something irked them. They didn't feel any restrictions towards shouting and yelling in the faces of poor little children. And and this one guy, I, I remember, I, I, it was you had to describe some kind of a description of a scene in nature or something. And I was describing a, a volcano erupting. And uh, having been a person who read lots and lots of comics, mm. and in in particularly in the sort of war comics, uh, whenever any uh, airplane Spitfire crashed or something, and the smoke would belch out. So I thought it was a good yeah, word to describe smoke coming out. Anyway, I, I described the smoke belching out of this uh, volcano, and he went absolutely apeshit. He obviously was offended by the word, and I, in my innocence, hadn't realised that it sort of is vaguely sort of distasteful. But I've just got this memory of sitting there quaking while yeah. he had his face in mine and the sort of spit from his mouth sort of splattering around my cheeks and yelling at me. Yeah. Absolutely awful. And it's a miracle, really. It didn't completely put me off writing at all because I've ended up being a writer, you know. Well, the the other example I've got that's like that was once we were queuing up, our class were queuing up outside the music room for a music lesson. Um, the music teacher that we had at the time, he wasn't at the school long. And I think this was where his career at the school ended. Um, and yet again, this is a, another difference. You know, we had we had you and you were really into to music and we knew that and we could talk to you about the jam and the clash and the pistols or whoever. And we had to queue up in silence outside for a music lesson. The music <laughs> teacher walked by and as the music teacher walked by John Eames, John Eames just kind of jokingly said, God save the sex pistols. And this teacher picked up John Eames and literally threw him against the door. So the door handle went into the small of his back and just completely crippled him. Good grief. Good grief. Yeah. And all of us are just in absolute stony faced shock and horror. So, yeah, could have been put off music big time. It has to be said that and anything like that was incredibly rare at that school. And uh, and, and in fact, I, I think I've got a memory of this guy who, who only lasted a short time before being asked to move on. So that's worth pointing out. I had this thing that ran for a good number of years called the Rock Club. Um, was that when you were there or had it already finished by the time you arrived? No, that's, that's what I mean. The, you know, the difference between this person's music lesson and way of teaching music an appreciation of music and a handing over an appreciation of music to young people was completely different to yours. And the whole rock club thing is, is such a big part of, well, it's a big part of my musical education, I guess. Well, I, I'll, I'll just, just see if I can remember the history correctly. And if I get this wrong, you can interrupt me. But I, I started that pretty much as soon as I got there. And the reason was that you, as a teacher, you're always expected to do what they call extracurricular activities. And that's normally sport of some kind. Mm. And as sport is complete and utter anathema to me, uh, I couldn't think of anything. And then I thought, well, let's introduce this uh, this 
music club. And all it consisted of, it was very democratic because uh, you'd go up, to, it was Monday lunch times, and we had yeah. a long lunch break, it was an hour. Yeah. We'd go up to the, um, the music room where there was a, a, a record player, mm. and I would just invite all the all the pupils, there wasn't a sort of official joining procedure, people would just pitch up there uh, to bring their albums into school, which they duly did in our price bags and things. And for the first, I'm guessing, two years or so, uh, it was almost entirely ruled by prog and heavy rock uh, people because that was that particular generation of students. So it was bands like... Um, Genesis, yes. So, yeah. like you know, uh, you play the entire side of the Tales from <laughs> Topographic Oceans, and the That's entire exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> the entire rock club hour was taken up, and then there was a kind of skirmish where the punks started coming in and saying, "Can we play our stuff?" And because I, I was immediately taken by punk, and it, and I was fed up with the Genesis stuff anyway. And I was very supportive of that. And, of course, the proggers were furious. They felt betrayed. There was one particular guy who, 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 who told me in no uncertain terms that I was betraying everything that was good about music by playing this tosh. And I'm thinking, this guy's only 15 or something, and he's talking like an old man. Um, but anyway, that was such a fantastic period. And, and I'd like you to sort of, you know, remind me of during what stage of that period you were around, because everybody, obviously they were bringing in their Nevermind the Bollocks and, uh, loads of sort of, uh, bands like Crass and Flux of Pink Engines and, uh, very obscure stuff on extremely tiny indie labels. Wow. That's and, yeah. That's yeah. A- before long, the progress had all completely gone, which didn't bother me really. And uh, it became like a sort of a, a, a punk club, really. Yeah, well, you would have had the likes of, you know, the great Rod Chamberlain taking crass stuff in. And yes. Rod was a year or two years above me. Okay, that's what I was trying to remember. Yeah. One one of my one of my memories of it was Tim and I turning up, and, and we had the seven inch of Down in the Tube Station at midnight, which is Oh. I want to say 1980. Yeah, exactly. And we and we kind of probably tent- tentatively handed it over to you and said, "Could you play this?" And I remember you saying, "What a fantastic single! What an amazing single!" And that, us thinking, "This guy's pretty cool." So, <laughs> well, and then true. <laughs> yeah, so you had that slightly older lot that were bringing in Crass and Flux and and bands like that. And then, oh, the some of the other bands like UK Decay like people oh, are yes. really into bands like that and not I mean I had their first two singles as well but yeah we would have been taking in um yeah the jam definitely definitely everything include uh, basically the first Stiff Little Fingers album I mean that was just such a huge influence to all of us at that time that you know well of course you do know that one of our best friends in winchester is like best mates with jake burns from stiff little fingers i know well that's my that's one that's my great i know we'll shoot forward and talk about us putting on gigs one day but almost yeah. my favorite sxse story is after years and years of trying to book mark eitzel from american music club uh finally booking him and i can't remember what the year was that the day was the 9th of december i think and we booked Mark <laughs> to, to play solo. And the gig before, Chris, the friend that we're talking about, Chris Cowan was there. And um, I was talking to him at the bar and said, Chris, you never guess what. Guess who I finally managed to book? And he was saying, who? He said, finally managed to book Mark Eitzel. And he went, oh, that's fantastic, fantastic. What's the day? And I said, oh, it's you know Thursday, the 9th of December. And he went, 
oh, I can't make it. Like, what do you mean you can't make it, Chris? This is like a watershed moment in <laughs> Winchester Railway, me and Oliver's history. You have to come. He goes, I can't. My mate's band are playing in Southampton. Oh, he's got a band. Yeah, his mate's in the average blues band. And I was like, <laughs> I said, Chris, who on earth is your mate that is in a band that's more important than coming to sing Mark Eitzel in the back room of the railway? And Chris just went, oh, I doubt you've heard of them, Reg, but it's a bloke <laughs> called Jake Burns and the band are called Stiff Little Fingers. I, I, saw, I saw my record collection flash before my eyes. It, I just like, froze and was going, I'm sorry, Chris, can you just say that again? Because I think you just said your best mate is Jake Burns and the band you're referring to are Stiff Little Fingers. He said, that's exactly what I did say, Rich. And just, it just incredible. And then I remember years, well, a few years after that, Chris turning up to my birthday party and saying, Rich, I haven't got you a present, but I promise you next time we're backstage. The next time SLF play, we're backstage. So, yeah, Chris, still got to hold you to that one. You know, uh, it always astounded me because um, Jake, I have my picture of him in his youth as kind of like a, a wild, uh, well, punk, I don't know if he was, but similar, uh, certainly doing very uh, uh, ahem, inflammable um, music um, mm. from Belfast. And Chris, uh, an extremely sort of, um, well, what's the word? Uh, 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 certainly a, a public school boy and a graduate of Cambridge. And, yeah. uh, you know, a very much delightful guy, but not the sort of thing you'd associate with pogoing around. Shows you shouldn't have preconceptions, doesn't it? Because he, he loves a good pogo in front of Sip Little Fingers. Well, Chris, um, uh, one of Chris's favourite gigs of all time is actually a gig I referred to the other week, which is the Trouble Funk gig at the Town and Country Club. Oh, yes. Chris was there for that as well. So, uh, yeah, Chris has got a fantastic... Uh, fantastic appreciation of music oh, I he, don't wouldn't, know. He, he wouldn't be throwing any children up against the wall for saying god's sake <laughs> well i sincerely hope he wouldn't uh, do you know i i can't remember why and when and how the that music club sort of came to an end um but i think it must have fizzled out at some stage but there was certainly did did, did you get taken over after after us was there then a bit of a new romantic thing were people bringing in Dave oh, very and much so. and yeah, like, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yes. Oh my goodness, uh, that reminds me of um, you probably don't remember a girl called Tina Prouting, who I see in Winchester occasionally, whose husband is a postman name. actually, and uh, she was the world's biggest fan of um, of Human League, and uh, her boyfriend. It's so sweet. It was a childhood romance, and you know now that. They've been married for like God, thirty-five years or whatever. But he had the Philip Oakey um, half curtain, you know, the kind of hair that that's long one side and yeah, short absolutely. on the other. And so yeah. did she. And they would wander around doing, looking very new romantic. I think I had a goth. I'm certain I had a goth period as well, with people coming was... in in their black leather overcoats and fields of Nephilim uh, um, hats <laughs> with flour on them and stuff. I, I remember there was a bit of a. They started with a bit of a crossover whereby, you know, you could be into punk and then the punk thing was you know, like Adam and the Ants, but Dirk wears white socks, Adam. For early Adam and the Ants, yes. boiled humanly. That was exactly. always considered okay. Yeah. But then it fractured a bit when those things went a bit pop, even though yes. looking back now, it's just dynamite pop. It's just incredible stuff. But then... There was definitely a bit of tribalism. Didn't start as being tribal, but it, it 
it became tribal. Yes, I think I guess it, I, I guess I stuck in the old school punk rock new wave camp until yeah until just about the end of school really. So around that time, everywhere in Winchester was forming bands. That was why the whole thing was so um, powerful and enabling because the whole punk thing meant that suddenly there were just bands everywhere. Uh, and yeah. including you and I mean, which was your? Do you know that we once played in a band together on in the assembly I hall? I know. I, I, I don't know if that. I'm not sure if that's the first gig I ever played, but it, it if not been, the first, it? it was the second or third. Because Abs was playing uh, an electric keyboard, and I played guitar. And it was. Do you know what it was based on? It was based on that. Um, electronic little... It's based on Tales from Topographic Oceans. <laughs> yes, we played for an hour and a half. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, do you remember I made a song called Watch It? Uh, yeah, which yeah, was uh, like a, It was like a sort of a, yeah, a craft-worky type thing, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> Factual fact. Yeah, Sod the and, Pupa uh, on the B-side. Say that again? Sod the Pupa on the B-side. Pu <laughs> yes. Well, in the end, I ended up it was so completely un rock and roll. I ended up selling it in aid of the school um, restoration fund <laughs> at the fate, and I set up a school at the school at the school fate. And I think I sold about fifty of these cassettes. And do you know, I still meet people in Winchester who say, uh, "Oh, yeah, I've still got that. I listen to it sometimes." You know, it should have been a hit. <laughs> Blimey. Anyway, so the only way I could play it live was to have a band. And, of course, uh, you were the person that I turned to. I don't think there was a drummer. I think it was just you, me, and Abs. I think if it was me and Abs, it was it was later than my first gig set. Yeah. The, I think you would have already been established as a as a performer, yeah. But but the first gig that I ever played, I played drums. That And that's a bit of a weird one. Ooh. Because um, Adam, who he, he, had, he was in my sister's year, two years above me, he had this band called I Am Seven, and I I knew I knew Adam because the other thing that Mr. Thorpe Tracy did in the same way as Rock Club, he did Drama Club, which was this after school thing, and that yes. which was like the greatest laugh ever. And I knew Adam through, from there, so he knew that I was into music and he was into music, so we became friends. And it I I ended up I was going to be in his band. But they they didn't have a drummer because it was it was him and um, a guy called Rob Holden on guitar, and uh, Rob Holden is now a very what would be the word yeah very successful sort of guru. Um, yeah, guru of what? Uh, yeah, yeah. Not I was going to say not productivity, but more like um, feeling good about yourself. I'm sure if there's, I'm sure if there's Robert Holden like fans out there listening, they they they'll hate me for saying this, but it's kind of like a a mindfulness thing. And, I shall Google um, him immediately. Yeah, and he he ended up like appearing a lot on daytime TV. He would be the person who would be. Oh, wow! You know, this is how we can live to be happy, and these are the steps that we need to take. And fast forwarding years and years, I found out that he had a house in this community called Findhorn up in Scotland. And on one of the theatres, we were playing up there. And so I, I put out a message to get in contact with him, but he wasn't there at the time. But then I got an email from him about, well, this is about a year and a half ago, saying, Rich, bloody hell, I am seven. How's it going? <laughs> so, it, so, yeah, Rob played guitar, Adam played bass, and they didn't have a, they didn't have a drummer. 
for this gig. So I bought a pair of drumsticks and got as many old telephone directories as I could and put them on my bed and just tried <laughs> to learn how to play drums. And we did three songs at a school assembly or something. So the first gig I ever played when I was you know, 13, I, I played drums. Well, those school assemblies could be hotbeds of nurturing talent because uh, Chris T.T., who is, is the son of Nolthorpe Tracer, who we've been yeah. talking about, who had a very long and successful musical career, he he played his first ever gigs in assemblies. So I'm I'm thinking at this stage, Rich, um, yeah. we're coming towards the end of this uh, episode. Why don't you, um, why don't we talk next time about your musical career and I Am Seven and all the trials and tribulations that came out of uh, you turning yourself into a, a hotshot guitarist? Oh, God. Yeah, come on. <laughs> don't be shy. Don't be shy.